Thank you for having me and having my wife and uh, youngest with us. Uh, we uh, are in town. Uh, we dropped our oldest off at college, uh, and that has uh, been life-altering. <laughs> uh, there are hallmarks in one's life, uh, obviously birth, uh, conversion, coming to Christ, marriage, uh, having children. There's nothing quite like dropping your daughter off and having to say goodbye. Yeah, that's a little necessary, isn't it? <laughs> but we're thankful to be here. I'm thankful to be here with you and for your kindness uh, to me, to my family, uh, and your kindness uh, to uh, the church that I have been called to serve. Thank you for praying for us, and I bring you greetings uh, from the brethren there. I would ask you to turn in your Bibles to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and I'll read in your hearing verses 1 through 5. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 through 5. Rich, do you always stand for the reading of God's word? Yeah, then let's, we'll stand and read these words of the living God, holy, inspired, infallible, and inerrant. And I, brethren, when I came unto you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Thus far, the reading of his word. You may be seated. The wisdom of God is the folly, the foolishness of Christ and him crucified. The power of God is the weakness of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so Christ's apostolic servant, Paul, preached that folly, preached that weakness, Christ and him crucified. And so it should be that every minister of the gospel, though not an apostle, should preach Christ and him crucified. And every church of the Lord Jesus Christ should rejoice, should indeed believe and rejoice in hearing the proclamation of Christ and him crucified. And this morning I want to give some explanation of these realities, these gospel truths, as Paul expresses them and lays them out for us here in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, when he says to the Corinthians, and even so then to us, for I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul here in the early chapters of this first letter to the church at Corinth reminds them of the substance and the scope that is the matter, the subject matter, and the goal or target of his ministry among them and so of the true ministry of the gospel. He says that he preached the cross. He preached the cross in distinction from what the Jews wished to hear or what they sought after, which was a sign, he says, and in distinction from certain Greeks who sought after what he calls wisdom. 
Instead, he preached Christ and specifically Christ crucified. The Jews, he says, ask for signs, the Greeks after wisdom. But we, verse 23 of chapter 1, preach Christ crucified. And he goes on to remind them, even after having spoken of the way in which they themselves were called to Christ through the preaching of the gospel of Christ and through the preaching of the cross of Christ, he goes on to tell them and remind them once again that when he was with them, he did not come with the tuned orations of the those who specialized in rhetoric. He did not come with excellency of speech or of wisdom, but he came proclaiming the testimony of God because he was determined. He had a singular focus and singular desire that they might know nothing more and nothing less than Jesus Christ and him crucified. He tells them, in short, that Christ, Christ, the one who has been made unto us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, this Christ and the weakness and the folly of his cross are to us everything. And so, to us, everything else must be nothing. And it's important to recognize that Paul here underscores his ministry not because he was self Aggrandizing, that is not because he had some ambition within himself, but Paul reminds them of what he preached precisely because what they were presently hearing was contrary to it. It was undermining the simplicity and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And the reality is we live in days not too different from the Apostle Paul, and the church at Corinth. We hear messages all around us that would diminish Christ, that would distract us from the cross of Christ. There are those who would come with a show of rhetoric, portending wisdom, There are those who would come and boldly and proudly and indeed perhaps on the surface powerfully say to us they have a message that is powerful. And yet Paul teaches us here that in the midst of all of the confusion of that day regarding Christ, his person, and his work. And he tells us here, even with respect to our own present day confusion regarding Christ, his person, and his work, that we are to be not merely content, but we are to find comfort and consolation for our souls in knowing Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, this morning I want to draw attention to two specific points of emphasis in this text. Two specific points of emphasis concerning Christ and him crucified that again go to the point of not only instructing us and instructing us well regarding who Jesus is and what it is that Jesus came into the world to do. But they help us clear away all of the clutter, clear away and push away all of the noise 
that surrounds us, not only in our culture, but all of the noise and clutter that finds its way even into the church and to churches regarding who Jesus is and what it is he came to do. Two things then, especially focusing on verses 1 and 2, though as these verses are embedded within this specific context and as they come to us in the whole of Scripture. First of all, notice the simplicity of Christ and him crucified. The simplicity of both the message that is the preaching of Christ and him crucified and the matter of Christ and him crucified. We might think that when Paul says, I determined not to know anything among you, he uses a double negative there, which is really a strong positive statement. That is, I determined just simply, just only, if you will, to know among you or have made known among you this one, Jesus Christ and him crucified. When he speaks that way, we might think that Paul is saying that there is a kind of narrowness to his uh, message, that he's a, a minimalist, that everything that he did and everything that he said when he was in Corinth was merely a repetition of these words, Jesus Christ and him crucified. As if all he ever did was say five words, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Yeah, five. Five words in their midst. That's not it at all. Paul doesn't reduce the matter of his ministry to one sliver of the whole counsel of God. That would be, in fact, to contradict not only what we read elsewhere in the scriptures and to contradict what we read in this letter taken as a whole, but it would actually contradict what Paul has just said in verse 1. Brethren, when I came to you, I didn't come with excellency of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. The testimony of God. The whole testimony of God. Everything that God himself has said. Everything that God himself authored, declared, revealed. All of it. Paul says, I declared unto you. And so as he comes and reminds them throughout this letter of various aspects of this testimony, so he does here. What he's saying is that in distinction from, again, the, the rhetoric, those elaborate orations of these counterfeit preachers in their midst, his own ministry was marked by a certain simplicity, a certain central focus, namely Christ and him crucified. And this pertains to the manner in which he preached as well as the matter which he preached. Paul, in fact, is nothing if he is not an apostolic servant of Jesus Christ. He is the one who was sent by Christ according to the will of God. And what he does is merely deliver over to them, again, this testimony of God. What God himself, as it were, witnesses to concerning his good pleasure, accomplished in his Son and applied by his Spirit. There's something important to notice here when Paul speaks of the testimony of God and his proclamation of it. Not only does it tell us that the preaching of Christ and him crucified is not reductionistic, it's not minimalistic, but it also tells us that the preaching of Christ and him crucified is a matter of divine authorship. God said it. God 
declared it. And Paul says here, I don't preach according to man's intention. I preach according to divine intention. Divine revelation. Divine disclosure. This is the testimony not of men, but of God. Did men see it and bear witness to it? Absolutely they did. Israel heard her prophets declaring the Christ that would come and suffer and rise again to glory. Those who were gathered around Christ during his earthly ministry, they heard him declaring of his sufferings and of the glory that would follow. And every apostle appointed by Christ, both in their public preaching and in their writing, testified to Christ and to his sufferings and to the glories that would follow. But all of it is divine testimony. All of it needs to be understood then as divine testimony, not only received as divine testimony, but interpreted as divine testimony. We don't ultimately ask the question of the scriptures, what did the hearers understand when they first heard it? We don't ultimately ask the question, what was in the mind of the prophets and the apostles as they wrote these words? But we ask the question, what did God, when through the Spirit working through those apostolic prophetic servants, what did he intend? And what he intends through all of the scriptures, through the whole testimony of God, is to proclaim Jesus Christ and him crucified. And if you've read the scriptures at all, if you've been a part of a church for any matter of time, you know that Jesus Christ and Him crucified, as it's made known across the whole canon of Holy Scripture, is though it can be summarized in those words, not minimalistic. It's not reductionistic. It's not just a little. But it is like that seed when planted in the ground, little and small, that grows into something grand and big. But even in the grandeur, you can see the simplicity of a Christ who was crucified. Now, in all of this, Paul is simply underscoring the fact that the focus of the testimony of God is Christ and him crucified. The simple focus of all that God has said is Christ and him crucified. And so Paul preaches Christ and him crucified. And it's important to recognize that those who had come into the church at Corinth, who were proclaiming that they had wisdom, that they had a message of power. They were preaching a Christ without a cross. And Paul says to them, I preached Christ and him crucified. I preached the whole testimony of God, which includes this which appears to be foolish and weak. I preached even the lowliness, the abasement, the accursedness of the cross of Jesus Christ. These orators, these masters of wisdom and rhetoric that Paul refutes, 
would have obscured a crucified Christ from view because they had determined that the crucifixion of the Lord of glory was somehow contrary to true wisdom and true power. They couldn't endorse a savior that hung upon an accursed tree. But for Paul, since this was central to God's own testimony, he did not withhold it. More than that, he says, I fixed my mind upon communicating this very reality of the gospel to you. I wanted you to know it and to know it in all of its simplicity. You see, the cross will always be an embarrassment to the cultured elite. It's fascinating as you read the history of theology and you look at particular eras, you see this happen all the time. That there are those who want to come and proclaim a Christ that is suited to the day and age in which they live. They want to appeal to the despisers of religion. Let's give them a Christ they can handle. Paul says, no, I'm going to give you the Christ you need. Not the Christ you want. Not the Christ you think will solve society's problems or perceived problems. Not the Christ who is a political ruler. The Christ who, as the king of his kingdom, laid down his life for his sheep. And what seals the deal for Paul in proclaiming Christ and even the folly of his crucifixion is that God said it. Divine testimony sealed the deal. When Paul then says, I wanted you, I was determined that you know Nothing save Christ and him crucified. He proclaims that in this singular determination of his, he wanted to fix upon the minds and the hearts of Christ's believing sheep the reality that they had a Savior, that God himself had sent a Savior and sent a mediator Though he was himself true God, was not ashamed to call us brethren and take upon himself our flesh. And though he indeed could have simply waved his hand, as it were, if he had willed to deal with sin, he nevertheless identified with us and took our sin upon himself even unto death even unto that ignoble death of crucifixion Paul then says that he preached the gospel simply he preached Christ and him crucified without any kind of ambition, without any kind of adornment, without any apology whatsoever. And he did so because even as it is contained in these words here, he knew that Christ and him crucified, that that declaration in all of its simplicity, that divine word uttered in the testimony of God, is itself sufficient unto the salvation of sinners. You see, the simplicity of the preaching of the cross and the simplicity of the cross itself goes hand in hand with the sufficiency of the preaching of the cross and the sufficiency of the cross itself. 
Why is it that Paul wants them to know Christ and him crucified? Why is it that he preaches Christ and him crucified? Because that's what we need to hear. And in a certain respect, that's everything we need to hear. It is enough for us. It's enough for us when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. It's enough for us as we trudge the path of faith in Jesus Christ. And it's enough for us as we will cross over into the presence of Christ. And so not only do we see something of the simplicity of Christ and him crucified, But secondly, and at a little bit more length, we see something of the sufficiency of Christ and him crucified. Again, there is a temptation to think that this is some kind of truncated message. That this is some kind of simplistic, narrow focus on Christ and him crucified, but it's not. Even there's the temptation to think that Paul is here saying that the only thing that we need to ever consider in the Christian faith is the events of Calvary. But I would argue that even Calvary itself compels us to a wider horizon, if you will, to consider not just that particular event, but as that particular event belongs to this whole, entire, full testimony of God. And in particular, when Paul says, I determine not to know anything among you, save or accept Jesus Christ and him crucified, Paul is here putting in summary fashion the person, the office, and the benefits of Jesus Christ. We don't often think of or reflect upon the names and titles of Christ, but they're here and we should. You see, when Paul says, I determined to know among you, or have made known among you, Jesus Christ Contained in those two names is a wealth of theology, a wealth of Christology. These names speak to us of the person of the Lord Jesus and of the office of the Lord Jesus. We might say that here in the very names, titles, Jesus Christ, we have a summary of the person and office of the only mediator between God and men. And it's important to recognize a couple of things about these names in general as they point us again to the person, to the office of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the cases, in both cases, that is, in the case of the name Jesus and the name Christ, it's important for us to recognize that as belonging to that testimony of God, God's word, it is God who names the mediator. And those names given by God, authored by God, authorize our speaking of Christ. That is, we don't make up any of this regarding the person and the work of the Lord Jesus. We receive it from God. God names. And those names speak truth. Truth that we are to receive in faith. And where is it that God names Jesus Christ? Well, all throughout Scripture. He names him by way of promise and anticipation in the Old Testament. Psalm 2, Psalm 45, 
text that I would encourage you to read. But elsewhere, even he names the person of his own son in that uh, great, simple name, I am that I am, in Exodus 3. And we had in our reading this morning from John 11 an I am statement. Jesus is saying something about himself there. But more specifically and narrowly, in the Gospels, Jesus Christ is named by God. He is named Jesus in the opening narrative of Matthew's Gospel, even before he is born. Matthew 1 and verses 20 through 25, the angel of the Lord gives to our Lord's earthly parents his name. His name shall be called Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. So Jesus, a name that means Savior, is promised and anticipated throughout the Old Testament, but is explicitly revealed there in Matthew chapter 1. The name Christ. We heard that name even in the reading of the scripture. Martha, in John 11, I have believed that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, or the son, there it's the Son of God, who came into the world, who comes into the world. How does she know that? Well, the Christ is named in his in that very event by which the name Christ, meaning anointed, is conferred upon him. Christ simply means anointed. And where is this person, this Jesus, anointed? In his baptism. We know that from Matthew chapter 3, where he is baptized by John the Baptist. And whereas he comes out of the waters of baptism, that dove descends upon him, or the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove descends upon him, and that voice from heaven names the one baptized. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now you say, well, wait a minute, the name Christ isn't there. It is by way of implication. Because where do we hear the name son in relation to anointing? We hear it in Psalm 2. Kiss the son, the psalmist says. Who is that son? The son that the father says, this day have I begotten thee, his only begotten son. And who is that? Well, earlier in the psalm, it is the Lord's anointed. And even when Peter then comes later on in the Gospel of Matthew and is asked the question, who do you say that I am? He answers, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And how does Peter know that? Jesus says, it's not flesh and blood that revealed that to you, but my Father in heaven. So again, these names, even though we've already begun to dive into the, the meaning of those names, the point is, it is God who names him. And significantly, it's important for us to recognize that this one Jesus Christ, in both cases, in the name, in both cases of both of those names, God names him as a single person, according to both natures. God names him as a single person. 
There are not two Christs, one divine, one human. There is one Christ. There is one mediator between God and men, himself man, Christ Jesus. The Bible never speaks of the deity or of the humanity of Jesus Christ in the abstract. That is, as these kind of floating natures that exist outside of a concrete reality. They always speak of the person of Jesus Christ, though they do distinguish those natures. They never speak of Jesus Christ in the abstract, but as one Savior, one anointed, one mediator between God and men who is himself God and man. If we had more time, we would give ourselves more to this understanding of the person of Jesus Christ. But I would encourage you to read your own confession of faith, our own confession of faith, chapter 8. Especially paragraph 2 and how it speaks of this one Christ named by God again as a single person, his own son who came into the world as a man. He is named then by God, named as a single person, and named, moreover, as the only mediator between God and man. Again, this name, Jesus, means Savior and speaks to something of the office that belongs to him, the calling that belongs to him, the calling he received from his Father and the calling he voluntarily undertook to save sinners. And the name Christ anointed speaks of the fact that he was anointed not as the prophets and priests and kings of old with oil, but he was anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure that he might be known as what he really is. The final, the chief prophet of the church of God. The great high priest of the church of God, who not only makes the sacrifice, but is the sacrifice. And the king, the shepherd of his people, who takes an unruly bunch of sinners and rules in the very hearts that he has changed. We might put it even as Paul did in the preceding verses. That this name, Jesus Christ, speaks of the fact that this one and this one only was made unto us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. He is the one in whom we find the fullness of all that is necessary for us to be reconciled to God, to be united to God forever. And so the names given by God to this one person speak of his office. But even more narrowly, Not only does Paul say that he proclaimed a Christ who is true God and true man, the two natures united in the one person of Jesus Christ, and that this one is the only mediator between God and men, the prophet and priest and king of the church. But even more specifically, he says that he preached the benefits of, of this Christ. The benefits 
of Christ and his satisfaction. When he says again that he preached among them Christ or Jesus Christ and him crucified. In contradiction to the false apostles that would have preached a Christ of their own making without a cross, Paul says, I preach to you the whole Christ with his cross because in the crucifixion, in the crucifixion we find the culmination of the obedience of Jesus Christ and in the crucifixion we find something of the satisfaction of Jesus Christ. Think of it for a moment. What does it mean to be crucified? Well, Deuteronomy 21 and verse 23 and Galatians 3 and verses 13 and 14 tell us that it means to be cursed. Cursed by God. And cursed by God on account of sin. But Jesus is the sinless one, is he not? Yes, most certainly Sinless as the person of the Son according to his deity, but also sinless as the mediator, as the God-man. Even according to his humanity, himself keeping the law of God the entirety of his life, perfectly, perpetually, personally himself. So why was he crucified? Why was he accursed? For us. For us and for our sins. For us and for our guilt laid upon him, taken by him. One reformed author puts it this way. When God said in the law, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, he certainly knew that his son would be hanged on a tree. Christ was punished this way neither by chance nor by the sole decision of the Jews, but by God's special providence and counsel. For since this inglorious kind of death was due to our wicked and shameful deeds, and death on a cross was cursed not only by human judgment, but also by divine sentence, Christ, our surety, had to undergo this death so that by making satisfaction... He might free us from the curse. You see, the curse, that burden of our sin was laid upon Christ. And what did he do? Paul says he was crucified. That is, he indeed made satisfaction for the curse and freed us from the curse. And in this way, only the preaching of Christ and him crucified is sufficient to create and nurture true saving faith in this Christ. Because only a Christ who is crucified is sufficient to save. Only a Christ who is crucified satisfies the curse that belongs to you and to me by virtue of Adam's sin and our own sin. And my friends, this is God's own testimony concerning his son who became incarnate for us and for our salvation. He said it. Paul preached it. And the question is, do we believe it? Does your faith stand in the wisdom of God, or excuse me, the wisdom of men, or in the power of God? And remember that the power of God is Christ and him crucified. It is a Savior who humbles himself unto death, being obedient unto death the mediator between God and men 
sent from God for men, bearing man's sin, bearing man's curse, so that men might be brought safely to God. When Paul says, I determined to know nothing among you save Christ and him crucified, he says, I want you to know the one, the only one, who reconciles you, a miserable sinner, to a merciful God. I want you to know the one who, because he bore the curse, because he made satisfaction for the curse upon the accursed tree, brings you out of your sin and into the presence of God forever. And should we think that it is somehow beneath Christ to be crucified, hear these words again from a Reformed author from the 16th century. We ought not to fear that this in any way is an insult to the Son of God. For Christ ought not to be considered here by those qualities that he has in and of himself as the true and eternal Son of God. But he is to be considered here in virtue of his office of mediator in the way of imputation. This is a condition that is of crucifixion. He willingly took on so that we in turn being justified by the imputation of his righteousness might be his brothers and co-heirs of the same kingdom. For we believe that he truly bore our curse that was laid upon him, in which he demonstrated the highest obedience to God and also manifested his own divine power by then overcoming the curse that he bore. Because you see, the crucified Christ is also the risen Christ. And Paul preached Christ crucified. And he could preach Christ crucified boldly because he was also the risen Christ. Paul preached the person of Christ. Paul preached the office of Christ. Paul preached the benefits of Christ. And Paul preaches faith in Jesus Christ. And tells us that our faith should stand in this Christ. Does your faith stand in this Christ? Do you believe upon the Lord Jesus? In all of his simplicity, in all of his sufficiency, my friend, hear the scriptures, hear the testimony of God. Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. God says it. Do you believe it? Oh, there's something else that I have to do in order to get to heaven. There's something I need to do in order to make myself right with God. No. Jesus Christ is wisdom from God. Righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. It's not you that was crucified for your sins. Though if you remain in your sins, you will be justly punished forever because of your sins. But this is the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God's own son in the flesh bore our curse. And did so perfectly, finally, fully, sufficiently, so that you, worthy of the curse as you are, may come to him with nothing and receive everything.
come to Jesus Christ and him crucified. And dear believer, do not be ashamed ever of the cross of Jesus Christ because to you his death is life. To you his accursedness is blessedness. To you, this Son of God who became man brings you a man to God. That you, that you and I might live with him forever and behold his face. In all of the accursedness of the one mediator between God and men, there is blessedness of men with the ever-blessed God. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and rest forever. Stand, Paul says, not by your own strength, but in the way of faith, in the way of believing, in the way of resting in the way of reposing. Stand in the power of God, which is Christ and Him crucified. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for sending your Son And Son, Lord Jesus, we thank you for coming in the flesh. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, for causing us to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, the one in whom, Father, you are well pleased. May we, too, be well pleased in him. Not by trying to stir up any kind of emotion, not by trying to stir up any kind of feigned and pretended love for him, but let us love him because we first believe upon him. And let us all of our days think upon and contemplate the beauty of Jesus Christ and him crucified, because we know that one day when we are made like unto him we shall see him and we will behold the savior the anointed mediator who lived who was crucified who died who was buried who descended into hell who rose again on the third day who ascended in heaven, and who, yes, will come again for us. Let us believe upon him, and in believing, let us hope, and in hoping, let us rejoice. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.